Hello and welcome to another episode of Mere Fidelity, where we have conversations about life, theology, the church, and the culture. My name is Derek Rishmaui, and I'm joined by Matthew Lee Anderson and Alistair Roberts for a one of our last episodes uh, recording through the confessions. I think we were talking about it earlier. It's been, we started maybe a year ago, but um, Wait, it's been a good- This book actually comes to an end? I, I, I thought this well, book would go on forever and ever and ever. The song that never ends, but uh, well, we'll see how that last book, what questions it brings us into. There, there may be, there may be a continuing uh, question there. But we are on book twelve uh, today for this discussion. If you're following along with us, um, and we're continuing through Augustine's meditations on creation. Uh, but to get us going there, I was going to go ahead and pitch it to Matt and see where he wanted to start. <laughs> Oh, that's kind of you. Thank you. Um, So it's interesting thinking about this within the context of what he did in book 11. I mean, book 11 was so much about time. Um, And here you have uh, questions about like the beginning of substance or matter or form and, and how that, (laughs) how that is all arranged and how we understand, um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and what Moses's intentions might have been uh, within that. And it's, there's really, I mean, there's two different lines of thought we could pursue. One would be why the sort of the, the, the substantive doctrinal question, why this question of the, be, the beginning of uh, creation seems so important to him, um, what hangs on it doctrinally for his understanding of God. Um, uh, like why is it, why is it such a problem that, uh, matter or, um, does that, does that indicate some kind of change in God seems to be a a central problem. Um, but then there's, there's also the interpretive question, like how does, how does Augustine, how is he thinking of scripture, uh, as disclosing a doctrine of creation, um, so I'd be interested in your guys' thoughts on uh, both those angles, the, the substantive question and then the, int- the interpretive question. On the question of the beginning, I'm trying to find the particular passage where he discusses the difference between various forms of priority and the way in which God's priority to his creation um, needs to be understood. I think that's important when we're thinking about what it means for God to be the first cause, for instance. Very often we think about God as the first cause, as the one that hit the first billiard ball and got things rolling, whereas he seems to be talking about something rather different, that there's a different sort of priority. In that section, just to read it, um, but it says first that he made formless creation and then that with form, His position is not absurd, not at least if he is capable of distinguishing priority in eternity, priority in time, priority in preference, priority in origin. An instance of priority in eternity would be that of God's priority to everything, of priority in time, that of the blossom to the fruit, of preference, that of the fruit to the blossom, of origin, that of sound to song. In these four, the first and last, which I've mentioned, are the hardest to understand, the middle two very easy. 
and then he goes on from there speaking about the eternity of God. Um, For it is rare to see and very hard to sustain this insight, Lord, of your eternity immutably making a mutable world and in this sense being anterior. And then who has a sufficiently acute mental discernment to be able to recognize without intense toil how sound is prior to song? And then he and then he goes on from there, but that's that's the uh, that's the uh, text in question. Um, the priority question is is fascinating. Um, I I don't have much to say there. I just wanted to read the quote. So Matt, Illuminus, or Alistair. Huh. I mean, one of the one of the questions <laughs> um, or angles in thinking about the priority is uh, he seems to be wrestling with the possibility of. Um, formless matter being the first thing that God made. Um, the, you know, this, this question of in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Much of it is there's, there's much of the problem seems to be that the text goes on and it talks about the arrangement of the matter. Um, uh, and so when God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, did he create a kind of formless matter that preceded in one way the imposition of form? Is there anything beneath form that has substance or that has existence? Um, is it possible to have a formless prime matter? So, you know, Aquinas, Aquinas will talk about prime matter being um, the matter that subsists sort of through the imposition of form. Um, And from what I can tell from this chapter, Augustine entertains the possibility, um, but doesn't conclude really one way or the other. He he seems to say, uh, at least as I read it, um, he seems to say that um, either account uh, is licit, whether there's a sort of, when God created, he created a kind of formless matter, which is really hard for us to imagine what that would be, um, or whether he created um, this formed matter and the text just describes, uh, sort of elaborates on that. Um, he seems to say both both positions can stand up. Um, at least that's how I understood it. Uh but I think I do have a question about like what what hangs on this question, other than it being an, uh, a kind of abstract question of doctrine, um, or you know what 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 within a doctrine of creation really does depend on your account of form and matter and their inter- interrelation in this kind of way. Well, I mean, just briefly, the I think part of it comes with the with the different contexts that Augustine's working with. I mean, which you're probably far more familiar with than I am, but the the, the metaphysical questions are very much in the air. Um, what is the relationship between, you know, the gods and the creation? Are are they, you know, what what kind of what kind of transcendence are we dealing with? The gods in most, you know, Greco-Roman thought, there's always some sense of transcendence to some degree, but is it, a, is it a transcendence of just a higher degree on the scale of being? Is it, um, you know, are we dealing with kind of a platonic or neoplatonic 
uh, forms of transcendence where you have, yeah, just scales of being where you've got the one at the top and then, and then things kind of radiating downward. Is it like, what's, what sort of, what sort of, and what sort of agency, what sort of relation does God have towards these things? I think part of that is in play. And I think it is part of what is, uh, in the minds of maybe some of his audience and hearers, uh, they, they, they take these questions of, of creational mechanics uh, seriously, or at least the philosophers of the day do. Uh, and so trying to pin down in, in exact, exactly what, what way does God relate to what is not God? Uh, what kind of authority does he have in it? What kind of, um, uh, what kind of sovereignty does he have, uh, over it? Is this in any way, is this matter, can it be thought of it to be in any way co-eternal with God? Um, that, that matters for, again, just thinking about the greatness of God uh, and, and the, nation, the nature of creation, at, the distinction between creation out of nothing versus um, creation out of stuff that was already there. And so um, I think that's one of the things in play, at least, is just the fact that the metaphysical questions, given the context and given the kind of uh, pagans that he's either arguing with or... Uh, catechizing, um, these are, these are live questions for some of them. Um, I think is, is one of the main, is one of the issues at hand. And, um, that I don't think it's purely an intellectual question. I mean, if it was okay, but, um, it does just matter for the worship of God, understanding God truly, uh, not confusing, not confusing God with the creation in some significant sense or with the false gods and the idols in, in a significant sense. Uh, and so that then it also, is, go for it. It also feeds into questions about um, the Logos and also God's wisdom and how they relate to creation. And mm -hmm. yeah. beyond that, how the creation depends upon God. So there is a certain sort of priority that I mentioned earlier that could be a very deist, deistic understanding of how God relates to his creation in his priority to it. As creator, but yet when we think about God's priority as being such that the creation depends upon God for its being at every single moment, um, that's a different sort of priority. And the difference between those two is not just a metaphysical, um, minor metaphysical question. It's a question that can have a deep impact for our understanding of how God relates to us here and now, how God is invested within his creation. Is he just the one that wound it up and let it go? Or is he the God who is upholding us in every single moment by um, the work of his son and spirit and the one in whom we are constantly given life and being in all things? Yeah, so one way, I mean, the, the, from from a more anthropological uh, perspective, um, it might be interesting to look at pages 251 and 252, um, where, you know, it's, it's before Augustine really dives into the abstract metaphysical questions. Um, and he, he's, from what I can tell, his arrangement of the cosmos, there's this uh, heaven of the heavens, heaven of heavens, that is a, a kind of a prototype of creation that's um, not co-eternal with God, but suffers no variation 
and experiences and no distending in the successiveness of time, he says it is. So it's it's kind of eternal, but not in the way that God is eternal because it's not it's not co-eternal. Um, so there's this heaven of the heavens, and he describes it near the top of page 252 um, uh, as um, it being the place where the pure heart enjoys absolute concord and unity in the unshakable peace of Holy Spirits, the citizens of your city in the heavens of above the visible heaven. So it's it's almost the gathering of all the all the citizens of God's kingdom, uh, including the angels, presumably, um, which, you know, it's the city of God, uh, as it were. Um, and one of the interesting things about this, this dynamic, uh, is that, you know, back on 251 above that, he, um, he'll say, you know, Lord, you created all natures and substances, which are not what you are and nevertheless exist. The only thing that is not from you is what has no existence. The movement of the will away from you who are is movement towards that which has less being. A movement of this nature is a fault and a sin, and no one's sin harms you or disturbs the order of your rule, either on high or down below. Um, and so there is this sense of within the creation as as uh, that God has put us in, the movement of the will needs to be towards that which uh, has more being and not less. Um, and that means a movement of the will towards this eternal heaven of heavens um, where our proper residence is, such that on 252, he returns to the pilgrimage motif, which he had developed in his own conversion narrative. You know, the city, he's, he's from this may the soul whose pilgrimage is far off understand if it has the experience of thirsting for you. So, you know, already its tears have become its bread while each day someone says to it, where is your God? Um, and so this, there's a sense in which the narratival pilgrimage that Augustine has been through is now framed, um, we might say vertically, uh, such that he's pining or longing for this eternal city where he's not afflicted by the vicissitudes of time. Um, and in one way, the doctrine of creation seems to throw him into uh, uh, an attempt to understand uh, how the, the mutability of the world um, can be valuable. Um, how this this changing experience that we have um, is worthwhile, given this longing for um, a, a return to the eternal heaven of heavens that he seems to be motivated by. Um, I don't know if that's helpful at all or, or illuminates anything. No, it is, and it and it is in this in in the way that it gives a contrast. Um, the fact that it gives value to mutable things, while at the same time, I think um, preserving the aseity of God is one of one of Augustine's main concerns. Here, he talks about the movement. One part of what he's trying to secure, I think, in in his doctrine of creation in this discussion, is the fact that 
the movement from being to non-being, you know, coming out of nothing, uh, these things don't disturb God's own eternity. They don't disturb God's own um, infinite peace, so to speak, that that motion is all external to him. His, his will is one with his being and his will is immutable and his will. And, and so you see that concern popping up in, in little paragraph after little paragraph hints here and there, but just the, the idea that um, the goodness of creation doesn't necessarily uh, involve um, and, and the, and the, and the kind of the appropriateness of the formation and the motion of, of creation uh, doesn't necessitate any thought of motion uh, or or changement, change or mutability uh, in God at any point. Um, God is that eternal, infinite peace. Uh, you know, before quote, you know, quote unquote, before and after, and you have to put those air quotes around uh, around that thought. In a sense, um, bringing the world into being. None of this disturbs him. None of this, um, even even our sin and our fault, doesn't. Uh, disturbing, and that gives us something to look towards. It is an undisturbed uh, God that we we are we are moving towards. We have a goal uh, that will be there, uh, unchanged uh, as it was from as it as as He has been from the beginning. Uh, and that's one other thread that I think that has always been important: just the, the doctrine of creation mirroring up and thinking about the doctrine of God and His aseity and His uh, immutability also connects our understanding of desire, our quest for God, with the metaphysical weight that is related to God's being, or the gravity that's related to God's being, is something that gives weight to our quest for him. Because our quest for him is not just a, um, an individual quest for personal relations, but it's something that gives meaning to our very existence, our very being within the world, is properly related to its source within our quest for God. And so the entirety of what he's discussing in Confessions is not just um, a private narrative of conversion, but it's relating um, the human being to its proper source in a way that gives weight to every single aspect of that being. And so I think reading the narrative back from that perspective um, gives some light to the purpose for this chapter. Mm. So this has been this has been like the uh, appetizer for the main course, or the discussion before the main event. Uh, however, we want to frame it. But I, I, I want to talk about the second issue, which is the way in which Augustine reads scripture and specifically the pluralism he seems to adopt about the meaning of the text um, and his sort of hermeneutical strategy. And here's why, here's why it's interesting to me, because I think, Alistair, um, I suspect you disagree with Augustine's uh, way of reading scripture here, uh, or at least the the sort of strategy he adopts to resolve his conundrum that he's in. Um, 
And I'm interested to hear if the, if I'm right about that, because and I say this because I, I think there have been lots of discussions that we've had um, where probably me, probably I have used scripture in one particular way. And you have come along and said, that's not the right way to use that scripture. Um and have dropped real knowledge to show why that's, and I have still wanted to hold on to some of my readings. Um, anyways, uh, and I, and I thought while reading this chapter last night, uh, it occurred to me that, um, something like Augustine's approach to scripture, I think I've probably imbibed as my own, um, not necessarily reflectively, but, um, perhaps just by reading Augustine some. So I'm I'm curious to hear what... You're just trying Alistair to excuse your wrongness here, Matt. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Subconsciously <laughs> imbibed Augustine when yeah. you're just wrong. <laughs> I know. Alistair, we the, know you're smart, but will you challenge? <laughs> but, I must say, I can certainly... I can certainly relate to Augustine when he has comments like this. And who of us has not felt this on Twitter on occasions? But when he says he did not have in mind what you say, but what I say, yet does not deny that what each of us is saying is true, then, my God, life of the poor, in whose bosom there is no contradiction, pour a softening rain into my heart that I may bear such critics with patience. <laughs> that was a great section. I, I love that line so much. I read that and thought, this is just me on Twitter. Um, so, okay, so... To answer your question, though, there is a plurality, I think, to the meaning of certain verses, a, a potential that can be explored in different directions. But that does not mean that every single um, meaning that's put forward is legitimate or is a possible reading. So I think getting back to the, the specific example he gives of the beginning um, and what it means to talk about in the beginning, it's interesting to see... Um, Colossians 1 15 to 20 and the way that Paul plays upon the meaning of or the ambivalence of that expression so he talks about Christ as the firstborn which is part of them he's getting into the Bereshith what does that term mean and so he talks about Christ as the firstborn and then he's supreme which is a second meaning and then he's the head which is a third meaning and then he's the beginning the fourth meaning and each one of these is capturing something of the light the pure light of that one term refracted through the story of Christ and we see the same thing even in the start of each one of the gospels in some sense or other is playing upon Christ at the beginning um and so i think there is a plurality that is appropriate that we can speak of because scripture is more of a poetic text than a scientific text and in poetry often you're playing with these different meanings there are certain that will be more prominent certain ones that won't be so prominent but there do need to be principles in determining these and the mere fact that something is true is not sufficient to say that it is what the author meant in a particular passage or is an appropriate interpretation of those terms. Yeah, that's there's the question there's the question of meaning potential, right? Whether there's layers of meaning, whether whether you can interpret it uh, 
a text from maybe a personal, a social, theological, etc. view and actually finding something corresponding uh, in there. Uh, and then there's the, the, the thing, there, there's the plurality that he's kind of advocating here, which is refreshing in some ways um, of, hey, if the doctrine happens to be true, um, like his, his, his sense is, is, is not necessarily, is it necessarily true to this text in that it corresponds purely with what Moses had in mind, but rather it's not false. It's not, it's not unorthodox. It's, it's a, it's a, it's an orthodox meaning, uh, possibly. Um, well then just kind of chill about it. Uh, let it lie a bit. Um, don't, don't be pushy, especially since we're both fallible interpreters. Um, and so a lot of what he seems to be pushing on is, um, even in that quote that you were, you were, we were, we were joking about that quote, uh, he seems to be focused on interpretive pride and on the interpretive motive that is not so much um, seeking after truth, but seeking to establish that I have arrived at the truth in a way that you have not. That, that seems to be one of the main concerns that he has around a contentious text like this. And he says, it seems like there's a, there's a baseline of, all right, we all agree God created the world out of nothing, etc. But the details of the form and the matter in heaven and earth, etc. Well, there's maybe 10 different interpreters, interpretations we can have there that are all true in that, in that kind of minimalist um, or orthodox sense, in which case, don't be pushy about it. Um, and that, that, that seems to be more, I don't know, that, that seemed to be one of the concerns that was uh, foremost or that came out in his in his meandering back and forth and talking about uh, plurality. Am, am I wrong here or picking that up? No, I, no, I think that's right. I mean, yeah. So the, 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 the ambiguity of the text seems to be decisive for this kind of strategy is, is what I'm thinking. So, I mean, he, Augustine is very clear that he's not going to have anything to do with anyone who puts forward an interpretation that's untrue. So he's got some kind of, independent criterion perhaps founded in a doctrine of God built on other scriptures, right? Where if you say um, matter is co-eternal with God, Augustine's going to come along and say, no, that's like you read, that can't be a meaning of in the beginning God created. Um, uh, that doesn't make any sense. So he's, he's got some kind of criterion that he's going to rule out certain readings, but it does seem to be that in, a, in an ambiguous passage, ambiguous passages need to be sort of allow for um, multiple interpretations and those who demand on one single interpretation when there are lots of other plausible, plausibly true readings. Um, uh, you know, that's what that's where I think, Derek, you're right. He, he accuses them of pride and um, basically says, how dare you? Uh, <laughs> try to impose your reading upon me. Um, but, but I still think there's, um, I mean, there's still a puzzle here about which text would count as mm -hmm. yeah. su sufficiently ambiguous that they would give rise to this kind of 
interpretive pluralism and um, what kind of generosity towards um, disagreement one needs to have as a result. Um, and I mean, I do think as well, uh, Augustine isn't going to be that, my, my suspicion is he won't be that harsh towards people who do in fact come up with true readings, um, tr with true uh, inferences so, based on bad readings of texts. Right. So, so I really do I want to defend myself against Alistair here um, <laughs> and say, you know, it's it's there is there's something about the text that um, and the reader that allows for um, a kind of flexibility such that not every reader needs to become uh, an ancient Near East scholar in order to discern um what the meaning of the text is within our own time. I think he's trying to say something, even you mentioned the term interpretive pluralism, which is often used as a source of skepticism of claims to truth in biblical interpretation in the current context. Yeah. I think he's not saying that. Rather, he's making not a skeptical point, but in part, one of the things he's saying is that the text has a great deal more potential than your attempt to limit it to a single meaning would suggest. He's also trying to break some of the differences down to size. So we may agree disagree on the interpretation of this particular text, but let's consider how much we do agree and what weight should be placed upon those disagreements that we do have because many people are getting the right doctrine from the wrong texts and there's something about a sense of the truth of God and of scripture more generally that we bring to each text that can be truer than and stronger and firmer than our interpretation of any particular text that it is supposedly founded upon and that's something that's difficult to talk about it's not easy to put our finger upon what exactly is going going on there but there are many people who are not the greatest interpreters of any specific passage but who have a deep instinct for the truth of the christian faith more generally and whenever they read certain passages even if they're reading them in the wrong way you're going to gain something from what they say um, because they'll be seeing some sort of truth even in the wrong place. And so breaking those differences hope for down you, to size, being able to have There's the hope. differences that we do, and yet say, okay, we disagree on this particular passage, but it's not the end of the world. It's, it's something that our faith doesn't hinge upon our particular reading of this text. And the fact that we can all come at this text and even in our misreadings arrive at a a fairly felicitous interpretation, um, that's a sign that maybe we shouldn't be placing quite the same weight that we do upon these fine disagreements that we have, such as the ones he describes on in the beginning. Yeah, so Alistair, I think that's really good and really helpful. And I, and I just want to affirm that I didn't mean to use interpretive pluralism in the sense that would uh, attach it to skepticism. And I think that's really valuable. But w And one of the things that's really interesting about it in this case is 
you know, Augustine reaches the end of these explorations and he will straight up acknowledge his ignorance and say and attach the confession of his ignorance to his confessions more broadly. So on 270, um, he will say on this principle, if anyone asks me which view was held by Moses, your great servant, I would not be using the language of my confessions if I fail to confess to you that I do not know. Right. So there's a there's a um, in his dialogue with God and his confessions of his sin and of praise and of who he is and who God is. Um, there's a confession of his ignorance, but it's very clearly a learned ignorance. Um, it's it's a. Uh, a stopping point that's been earned, as it were, because he has very carefully gone through. Here are six different options for reading. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And let's evaluate all of these options and uh, think through them. And it's not the kind of, well, whatever, you know, oh, I've just got a question about this and I guess I don't know. Um it's as as an intellectual exercise, the the confession of ignorance comes at the end of a really, really granular attempt to understand the meaning of this text. Um, and I think just in terms of distancing Augustine as reader and inquirer from uh, the kinds of ways in which disagreements about the meanings of text get handled in our own day. That's, that's, that's just really important. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. And the striking thing for me is that he's not saying that this is a, okay, we just don't know what it means. So we really can't read this text with profit. This is not that at all. Rather, he believes right. that we can read Genesis, the beginning of Genesis with considerable profit for ourselves even though we don't know with absolute certainty what we should interpret those phrases as. The, the other quick thought that uh, struck me as I was reading, he was, he was riffing through, you know, you know, 10 different interpretations of 12 different interpretations of the possible phrase created heaven and earth. Um, just not, not ignoring the patristic interpreters uh, the fathers were often keenly aware of textual ambiguities and uh, possible interpretations of text, and some of which uh, are in the realm of the sort of things that uh, your your good ancient Near East scholar will be saying. Oh, but you know, it could could be talking about this kind of formative, creative, uh, you know, imposition of of, of order. On matter, you know, half of that sounded like uh, what's his name? Oh gosh, the guy who does the Lost World of everything, Walton. Walton. Some of that, yeah, half of that sounded like you know possible Walton interpretations of the Lost World of Genesis one, and and you know I guess it wasn't that lost to Augustine in the you know fourth century, uh, fifth century, and so so not knocking or not ignoring patristic authors uh, as as legitimate legitimate interpreters of scripture with whom we should have to do with whom we should consult on a regular basis um, is just something that I, I was struck by Matt. I was struck by that thought. Um, but on that note, uh, 
this is why we've been having these conversations. Uh, I hate you. With- I just, I can't believe you <laughs> did that. We had almost made it. Um, we all. <sighs> golly. Anyways, on that note. We want to um, invite our listeners to create a bingo card oh. for the podcast. Yes. Because we all oh, use man. certain expressions far too much. And you and it you, would be amusing to see which ones you recognize that we may not have picked up us on ourselves. That's right. Alistair said refracted. So, you know, there's there's one. Um, I think struck is the free. Uh, it's the one in the middle that everyone gets for free. Um, yeah. So, you know, whether it's Derek or me or Alistair, we, you know, struck. Um so that's the free one, but if you have other suggestions for the Mere Fidelity bingo card, not that we are encouraging gambling, we're encouraging a, a paying attention. <laughs> oh, man. On that note, we're going to wrap it up here. Uh, <laughs> thanks for listening. Uh, yeah, thanks for listening. Have a good day. <laughs> oh, man. Uh,